Our text this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to be spending a little time with this text more than just this Sunday. And so I'm not going to read the entire passage. It all fits together beautifully, and it's one passage. But I'm going to be focusing on just the first part of this text, and so I will read this morning uh, just the first six verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul says, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast but on my behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. I'll end the reading there. Over the years, I've been in various settings with other pastors. Sometimes uh, it's an informal conversation among a handful. Sometimes it's at a convention. Sometimes it's at a conference of some sort. And um, as pastors get together to talk in those kinds of settings, the conversation almost inevitably goes something like this. So, how are things going at your church? The answer, something like this. Well, things are going pretty well. No one is really specific at first. Uh, the questions are general. The responses are vague, trying to get a sense of the lay of the land. But before long, somebody will say, you know... Our Sunday morning attendance has really grown this year. How about yours? Or I know in these times of inflation and things like that, you know, a lot of churches have had to cut their budgets, um, but we've expanded ours yet again this year. Or our mission giving is up this year. Or, you know, we have this new worship leader, and boy, the praise team is really awesome. It's a subtle game. Basically, what we say is, here is what we're doing, here's how things are going, and without saying it is, can you match that? Can you top that? How different is the attitude of the Apostle Paul? Paul, for example, never kept statistics. He never could have written an annual report because he didn't keep record of anything. Uh, he never kept statistics on how many people he reached. Uh, he never jotted down the size of the crowds to whom he spoke. Um, he never boasted of the converts he had made. 
Uh, he didn't even remember how many people he had baptized. Remember, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I baptize. He gives a couple names. And then he says, I don't remember if I baptize anybody else or not. If I do, I don't even remember their names. Well, what kind of record keeping is that? It wasn't that important to him. Didn't even keep a record of those who he had baptized. Uh, he never tried to wow his listeners with amazing miracle stories. You know, a couple weeks ago when I was in the city of whatever, you know, the spirit came down and, uh, you know, these awesome things that happened. He never did that sort of thing. Well, the false teachers in Corinth had a very different approach, very different attitude. And um, their idea was, their approach was to one-up Paul in about every area they could think of. And so many comparisons, we've seen them already in this letter. We come now to the final one. And it's simply this. These false teachers were claiming glorious visions and revelations from heaven. Oh, the Holy Spirit talked to me. God said to me, whatever it is. Let me tell you all about what God said to me last night in a dream or, or whatever it is. And the implication is, as they would relate these visions, revelations of whatever kind they were is, so guess what, you Corinthians, were sent here by God because of all the visions and revelations that we have. We're the real deal. We bring the true message. Uh, we are certainly more spiritual than other folks are. So we ask you, Corinthians, does Paul have any such visions? Has he ever told you the story of even one of them? No, I don't think so. He hasn't done that, has he? Um, and since he doesn't have any great visions and revelations like we have, why are you listening to him? Because for us, the Holy Spirit talks to us. But maybe he doesn't talk to the Apostle Paul or not the apostle, they wouldn't have called him that. They didn't believe he was a genuine apostle. And so we, the newcomers to Corinth, we bring you the latest and the greatest. We are spirit-filled leaders. We're spirit-directed charismatics, and he isn't. And by the way, don't forget, you Corinthians, that visions and revelations are essential for ministry credentials. That was their attitude. Well, how does Paul respond to that? His response is here in our text this morning. It's the climax of uh, his fool's speech. We began looking at that speech uh, in chapter 11, where Paul is playing the part of a fool, and he continues to do so in this text, taking the part of a boastful, arrogant person, which he is not, but he's playing a part to make a point. And so this is the climax of his fool's speech, and the entire passage really is the climax of his letter. And so he starts out, you notice in verse 1, I have to go on boasting, since you Corinthians, if I can paraphrase verse 1, are so enamored with visions and revelations of all kinds, I now turn to that subject. Paul says, I find it necessary to boast in these things, although what he says in verse 1 is, there's nothing to be gained by it. He says to the Corinthians, I hope you understand that. It's not proof of ministry credentials, Paul says. Uh, it's not appropriate even for an apostle of Christ to, uh, to boast in that kind of a way. And all that highlighting visions and revelation does, in Paul's mind, and rightly so is how he understands it, it draws attention to the person. God talks to me. Oh, and then you gather a whole circle of admirers around who are waiting for the latest and greatest and the most exciting and the newest and all of that sort of thing. It gathers a circle of admirers who are breathlessly waiting for the latest, 
rather than building true disciples of Jesus Christ. And so boasting in visions and revelation builds up the teller's ego. And it confers, Paul says, absolutely no spiritual benefit on any of you, is the way he puts it in this text. Nothing is to be gained, he says in verse 1, by boasting in visions and revelations. The whole exercise is foolish, but out of necessity I press on. Now, you notice in verse 1, the, the, the word vision and revelation is in the plural. Notice that. What, what Paul is saying is, if I wanted to, I could relate to you a whole host of visions and revelations. I could give you an extended list of them if I would choose to do so. I could give you an impressive list that would far outshine anything these so-called super apostles are bringing to you. Paul says, I'm not going to do that. But he does choose one revelation. You notice that in the text. And in this handful of verses, Paul relates the most extraordinary vision and revelation he ever received uh, since his encounter with the risen Christ on the road to Damascus. But you notice here, look, look in this text, even when he's boasting of his own vision, he doesn't boast of it at all. Because what does Paul tell us about the vision? Nothing. What did he see? What did he hear? He doesn't tell us a thing. Did you notice that in the text? What kind, what kind of a story is that? Paul said, I had an experience, but I'm not telling you anything about it. Uh, in fact, you notice, what does he do? He tells the story in the third person. Did you catch that in the text? I knew a man in Christ who 14 years ago, Paul says, was caught up to the third heaven. So if you paraphrase, I knew somebody once, Paul says, who related this story to me. Now he's talking about himself, but he puts it in the third person to remove any idea that he's boasting about anything. I knew somebody once. Let me just relate to you a little bit of what I heard. And so Paul begins by telling us when this revelation occurred. You notice in verse 2, it took place 14 years earlier, Paul says. Now, when you work through all the chronological hints in the New Testament, in the epistles, in the book of Acts, this vision took place just before Paul officially embarked on his apostolic ministry. It took place, we gather, in the city of Antioch, at the time that he and Barnabas were ordained and sent out on their first missionary journey to go out and to preach the gospel to unreached peoples in unreached towns and cities. And so that's the timing of it. And, and what a contrast. If you remember what we looked at last week, Paul tells a very different story at the end of chapter 11. He had been in the wilderness of Arabia for three years, so he'd been converted to Christ, three years of training in the wilderness of Arabia, and then he comes back to Damascus where he'd been converted to Christ, and the authorities get wind that he's there, and Luke tells us in the book of Acts they wanted to arrest him and execute him. And so Paul goes into hiding in the city, but the police are patrolling the streets. The, the gates are being guarded. There's an all-points bulletin out for this Saul of Tarsus. And so Paul makes his way, Luke tells us, and, and Paul tells us in the previous chapter, made his way to a safe house, the home of a Christian who, thank the Lord, had his dwelling on the wall of the city of Damascus, as was customary in those days, and there was a window. Thank the Lord on the outside of the house, up on top of the wall. 
And so got some rope, got a wicker basket, waited till it was like midnight, squeezed him through the narrow opening, squeezed the wicker basket through the opening, and lowered him to the ground in uh, the middle of the night. And Paul, his life on the line, makes a run for it. He is a hunted fugitive. He is alone. He is humiliated. About the lowest point you can imagine. And not long after that, he goes from there to Antioch, and not long after that, he receives this vision that he touches on very briefly in our text, where in dramatic contrast to being lowered over a wall in the middle of the night, he's caught up to the highest heaven of heavens, the very paradise of God. And this vision that Paul briefly touches on here made a huge impact on his ministry. We know the time of the vision, but Paul doesn't tell us, as I said moments ago, anything about what the vision actually was about. Although it's very likely most Bible scholars, and I think rightly so, conclude that the vision was a revelation of the glory that lay ahead. Um, John Calvin, the great reformer from the 16th century, is right on target when he writes this. He says, what Paul saw and heard and experienced undoubtedly fortified him to endure the sufferings which lay ahead of him wherever he went. And we saw that catalog of sufferings, didn't we, in the previous chapter, where Paul is hungry, he's thirsty, he lacks sleep, he's in danger everywhere he goes, danger on land, danger at sea, danger from robbers, danger from being beaten and arrested, all these different great dangers, he lays them all out there. And what this vision the purpose of it is to sustain him to go through the incredible list of sufferings that he endured. That explains his astounding zeal for Christ. That explains him pressing ahead when his life was on the line, he had nothing to eat, he was exhausted. All of these things he kept pressing ahead in taxing, draining labors because he knew what lay ahead of him. He knew the glory that was to come. And so Paul, sustained by that vision, just before he went on his first missionary trip, sets out with that vision in his heart, in his mind. And as he went on these various missionary trips over a number of years, talk about an impact on the first century church. We cannot imagine the Christian church apart from the Apostle Paul. And you think about for us today, we're still immensely blessed by his ministry 2,000 years later, by his life, his ministry. While we're looking at 2 Corinthians, his writings, we're, we're tremendously blessed by what God gifted him to do. Now think about this. So Paul says in the text, this vision took place 14 years ago. 14 years before he wrote 2 Corinthians. Which means then that the vision occurred long before Paul ever showed up in Corinth for the first time. Remember, the book of Acts tells the story, he came there as a pioneer missionary. He came there as a church planter. And so he came into the city, he preached the gospel, he was there for a year and a half, Luke tells us in the book of Acts. And so in that year and a half, people were converted to Christ. They were baptized into the Christian faith. The congregation was organized. Elders were appointed. Everything was put in place. And never once did Paul even breathe a hint about this vision. Not once. And the only reason he mentions it now is, as he will say in so many words in several verses on, 
You forced me into it. And so Paul sat on this astounding experience for 14 years, not telling anybody a word about anything. He made no effort to capitalize on his experience. Guess what I experienced? You all better listen to me now, because let me tell you a story. Never did that. Uh, he didn't go on the lecture circuit. You know, wowing people with what he had seen and heard. He didn't try to line up speaking engagements. You know, he could have had a great lecture, six steps to your own ecstatic experience. He didn't sign a book contract. I thought of a good title for a book he could have written. My visit to the third heaven, my trip to paradise and back. He could have gotten a Christian publisher to publish the thing. There was no made-for-TV movie about his experience. No articles, no blogs. No website. How contrary that is to the spirit of the false teachers in Paul's day and to the popular writers of today. Those ones who shout each in his or her own way, guess what, I've been to paradise and I'm writing a book about it. I compiled a list of uh, some of the books published in recent years. It's not a complete list. I left some of them out of the list. Some of these authors and books you'll have heard of, some you won't have. Uh, Richard Sigmund wrote a book called My Time in Heaven. Jim Woodford, here was the title of his book, Heaven, An Unexpected Journey, One Man's Experience with Heaven, Angels, and the Afterlife. Wow, better read that thing. Here's another one, Mickey Robinson, Falling into Heaven, a skydiver's gripping account of heaven, healings, and miracles. Here's another one. Uh, it was a best-selling Christian book in 2010, published by Tyndale Publishers, of all things. Uh, the Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, a true story. It purported to be the story of uh, Alex uh, Malarkey's experience in heaven, after an, a traffic accident in uh, 2004. There was even a TV movie made about it. And then several years later, Alex said, ah, never mind, it was all a hoax. Or here's one, uh, Kim Robinson, Heaven is Real and Fun. Here's what she writes. Since 1988, the Holy Spirit has been taking me to heaven. Jesus would show me various fun places, and allowed me to do fun things. Yeah, that's in the Bible, isn't there? Somewhere? Pretty sure. I asked, why was he showing me these places? Daddy God said, because I have planned for each person in detail what makes them happy to be here with me, so you are to tell them heaven is real and fun, and Jesus is coming soon. That woman has a hallucination. She needs some help. That's all I would say about that one. And then this one, heaven is for real. Ah, published 2011, millions of copies of that book, uh, a movie made. Uh, Todd Burpo purportedly tells the story of his young son Colton being caught up to heaven. A lot of evangelical uh, preachers and writers have criticized the book, John MacArthur being one of the main ones, uh, for presenting an unbiblical perspective on the afterlife. But people are all up in arms. Who is John MacArthur to use the Bible to criticize a preschooler's story? There's a lot of things wrong with heaven is for real. 
But, but sadly, what all this points to is in the church, there is a great appetite for the visionary, uh, for the mystical. We are credulous. We're gullible. Somebody says, I went to heaven. And so it's like, well, yeah, well, sure, that sounds right. We seek the novel. We seek the exciting. And we're not content with the word. And, and what I think about is our, our thought process is like um, the rich man in Luke chapter 16. Remember he, the story of the rich man and Lazarus? And Lazarus goes to paradise, to Abraham's bosom is the way uh, Jesus puts it. And uh, the rich man goes to a place of torment, to hell. And so the rich man says to Abraham, where Lazarus is there with Abraham, and he says, Father Abraham, send Lazarus back from heaven. He'd have quite a story to tell. Send him back from heaven to warn my five brothers, lest they come to this place of torment where I am. And, you know, if he shares his personal vision of the afterlife, why, then they'll know heaven is for real. And then they'll know hell is for real also. And Abraham's response is, I'm not doing it because they have the Bible. That's all they need. They have Moses. They have the prophets. All that is needed for this life and the life to come is recorded in Holy Scripture. If they will not read and believe the Bible, they'll not believe even if somebody returns from the dead and shares their purported vision of paradise in fact just before jesus returned to his father in uh, the end of matthew's gospel he made very clear that christian teaching theology doctrine ministry is to be based upon what he had already commanded on earth not the latest visions not a trip to the third heaven or anything like it Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, the last words of the gospel. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. You know the Great Commission. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so Paul, as he is going to, quote, boast about his visit to the third heaven, doesn't describe anything about it. What does he say? He says, I was caught up to the third heaven. And what is the third heaven? Well, the first heaven, in, in ancient thinking, the first heaven was like the sky. You go outside, you look up, you see the clouds, the birds, the atmosphere around the earth. That's the first heaven. The second heaven is the sun, moon, stars, the galaxy, the universe. That's the second heaven. And then the third heaven is the dwelling place of God. And so what does Paul say here? He says, I don't know anything about the circumstances can't tell you a thing about it i don't know whether i was in the body or out of the body he says it twice i have no idea it doesn't matter it's not important and paul says i can't tell you anything i heard all he can say is i know it happened and i was there you notice what paul says in the end of verse four this person, he's talking about himself, of course, heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. Which points to the fact that today, if somebody actually experiences raptures like Paul did, they're supposed to keep it to themselves, not write a book about it. 
So in this passage here, Paul boasts about his vision. We just know when it happened, have no clue what it was about. That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Uh, and, and so what this passage makes clear is that there's no room in Christianity for an individualistic, um, a privatistic, a subjective approach to the gospel. A person's visions, real or imagined, cannot be the foundation of anything when it comes to the Christian faith. They're not to be the subject of teaching and preaching and ministry. The Christian faith, we need to understand, is something objective. The Christian faith is centered in real-time historical events. And as I just pointed out moments ago, we have the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures are completely sufficient for faith and life. Uh, you confirmation students that are here, we talked exactly about that last Wednesday, didn't we? That the sufficiency of Scripture for faith and life, it's one of the great Reformation doctrines. Look at this passage from, from Deuteronomy chapter 4. The first two verses. And now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Don't add to it. Don't take from it. The scriptures are all sufficient for everything that you and I need. But in our day, the, the, the sufficiency of Scripture is under attack. We give credence to extra-biblical revelations. We turn Christianity into a human-centered subjectivism. We elevate mystical experiences over settled, objective, biblical truth. And in a whole different way, when you think about, I read an article about how churches everywhere are declining in large numbers. It was interesting to read you know, what the median church size was 10 years ago, 20 years ago, what it is today. It's declined tremendously in numbers. And so the question is, what do you do about it? Well, what techniques can we use now to try to build up the church? You know, just preaching the word faithfully and teaching the things of God, that isn't enough. That's not sufficient. We have to come up with new techniques, various worldly methods. we got to draw a crowd. we got to do whatever it is because the Scriptures don't do it. They're not sufficient. And so in so many different ways, we live in a day where the Scriptures, even uh, in spite of what we might say, are not adequate for Christian belief and life. And so don't be led astray in these days. We don't need visions and revelations we don't need modern so-called prophets we need christians who are anchored in the word and growing in the word let me read you uh, something from scott haifman uh, he is a new testament scholar he's currently teaching at uh, the university of saint andrews in scotland and he gives this warning as, as he talks about the, this whole issue he, he says you'll get yourself into spiritual trouble if your life is shaped by so-called charismatic experiences of one kind or another. Because here's what he writes. I'm quoting him. Ecstatic experience, like drug addiction, requires larger and larger doses 
to satisfy. And here's what he goes on to write. The ordinary will give way to the unusual. The unusual will surrender to the extreme. The extreme will topple to the ridiculous. So you have these ecstatic things. That's what your spirituality is centered around. But the next time you need a, a stronger fix, stronger, stronger, stronger. And so the ordinary becomes the unusual, becomes the extreme, becomes the ridiculous. And the inevitable consequences of centering one's Christianity, of pursuing mystical experiences and visions and revelations and the ecstatic and emotionalism is in the end there is spiritual emptiness and how many turn away from the Christian faith entirely because you can't get a higher and higher fix and you just give up on the whole thing and you walk away from the faith. Let me just conclude with this. 2 Peter 1. Verses 3 and 4. Peter says, speaking of God, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desires. Now, the Apostle Peter tells us that God's power has already granted us all that we need for life and godliness. First, by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, we have a saving relationship with the Lord. And second, we have His Word, filled with what does Peter say? Exceedingly great and precious promises. Christ and His Word are all that we need. And so let us rest in that. Let us grow in that. Let us live in that reality to the glory of God alone. Scriptures are sufficient for all things. Let us pray. Lord, uh, to read your word, to study it, to dig into it, takes work, takes effort, enlightenment of your Holy Spirit, prayer, there's a lot easier way. Seek some ecstatic experience, kind of a shortcut to the divine, shortcut to spirituality. It doesn't work that way. And so, Lord, uh, we pray that as we enter into this fall season, Awana is beginning, youth group is beginning, Sunday school is beginning, worship services continue, Bible studies continue. Lord, that in all these things we might become increasingly grounded and dig into the substance of your word so that we might be changed and equipped from the inside out. We have all things necessary, Peter says, for life and godliness in the word. And so, Lord, uh, a multitude of lifetimes would not be enough to dig into your word and to grasp all the truth that is there. But Lord, make us faithful students of your word. May we not be caught up with emotionalism, extremes, all the trends that seem to be so um, winsome in these days, things that would carry us away from the centrality of your word. Keep us grounded in your truth. Your word is truth. That's how we are sanctified. That's how we become more Christ-like. And so, Lord, uh, focus our attention in these days upon your son, Jesus Christ as he is revealed to us in the pages of Holy Scripture. And may that word be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. May it become increasingly precious to us 
the law of the Lord is perfect. It converts the soul. The testimonies of the Lord are sure, making wise the simple. So, Lord, may our lives be increasingly grounded in your holy word. We ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.